Good morning, church. Merry Christmas. My name is Isaac, as Dave said, one of the pastors here, and we're continuing in our series this morning, our Advent series called O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. If you've been with us the last couple weeks, you know this, uh, this is a series looking at the Old Testament prophecies, a few of the Old Testament prophecies that point to the coming of the Messiah. So this morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to focus on verses 6 and 7, but I'm going to start reading in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah 9 and read with me from verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we see from your word that you have purposed even from eternity past, to demonstrate your glorious grace by rescuing sinners. I pray that you would open our eyes this morning by your Spirit to see you more clearly, to see your plan of redemption unfolding, not just in the history, history of Israel, but in our own lives. Spirit of God, I pray that you would glorify Christ through the proclamation of your word this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. This passage is about a game-changing, or we might say world-changing, arrival. We are at a point in the story of Israel where things are desperate. The Assyrian Empire is the dominant regional power of this time. They are quickly expanding their territory, and they have already started to conquer the northern part of the nation of Israel. You remember after the death of Solomon, the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. The northern part of the northern kingdom has already been conquered by Assyria, and they are working their way down. By 722 BC, they will have totally conquered the northern kingdom. It will cease to exist and then the Assyrian Empire will set its sights on Judah and Jerusalem. 
We see the mood captured at the end of chapter 8, just before the place that we started reading this morning. In verse 22, it says, They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Thick darkness has settled. Hope is dwindling, despair is rising. And into this moment of despair and darkness, someone has arrived on the scene. Light has come, hope has returned. I was reminded of the, the second book or the movie of Lord of the Rings, if you're familiar with the, the story of the two towers, you probably remember the Battle of Helm's Deep. The people of Rohan have taken a stand against the army of Saruman in the fortress of Hornburg. The battle has raged through the night, but the people of Rohan and their allies are severely outnumbered, and they cannot hold off the horde of Saruman's army. They've breached the walls. Orcs are flooding in. The people are pinned against the mountain with no way of escape. And then in the distance, over the hill, the sun rises. And standing on the hill is Gandalf the White, riding on Shadowfax in glory with 2,000 Rohirrim at his side. And they flood down the mountain and cause confusion and, and panic among Saruman's army and turn the tide of the battle for victory. We love stories like that, don't we? The hero rides in at the last moment when all is lost to save the day. And I believe that that is exactly what this passage is about. But it doesn't unfold the way that a typical Hollywood drama does. So to understand what this passage has to say for us, I have two questions that I want to look at. First, who has come? Remember, we're talking about a dramatic arrival. So the first question is, who has come? The second question is, why has he come? Let's look at the first question. Who has come? I'm going to start in verse 6, and then we'll kind of work out from there. The text gives us two primary characteristics of this one who is arriving, who has arrived. The first characteristic is that he is human. He's a human child. The second characteristic is that he is God. Now, you might be thinking, well, that seems... It's pretty straightforward. I guess we can just kind of move on. No controversy at all about this divine dual nature of God and man existing together in the person of the Messiah. And truthfully, based on how our Bibles are translated, it does seem very clear. On the one hand, you have a child, a boy being born. That only happens to humans, right? God isn't born at least not in the Jewish understanding of who God was. On the other hand, you have the child, this human child, being called by names like Mighty God and Everlasting Father. Those are not names that human children, human, humans in general, get called by. So the logical question is, why is there any doubt, especially among Jews and Jewish scholars, about this incarnational reality of the Messiah, God taking on human flesh. The fact is there is great doubt and great controversy about this reality, not just among Jews and Jewish scholars, but also among 
Muslims, among non-Christian scholars, and among uh, non-Orthodox Christian-based sects like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. There has been controversy about this reality since the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. If you remember, at least on the surface, the main reason why the Jewish leaders of his day wanted to kill him was that he claimed to be God. But you would think that knowing the prophecies of Isaiah, which they did, this passage would stand out as a uniquely incredible claim about the nature of the Messiah. So why is there so much controversy? The simple answer to this question is that Jewish scholars did not and do not today interpret this passage in the same way that we do. And here I think we have to address at least briefly some of the challenges of biblical translation and interpretation. It's not always simple and straightforward to translate texts that were written almost 3,000 years ago. There was no punctuation in the original texts. Oftentimes, the grammatical structure is ambiguous, such that it's possible to inter- that there could be several legitimate translations of, of a specific passage. For example, just one example in this, from this passage, the term that we translate here as mighty God is a Hebrew term, El Gabor. It is often translated as it is here, mighty God, or mighty one, clearly referring to God, but it's also sometimes translated as mighty warrior or champion, clearly referring to people. And so some scholars would say that we are being disingenuous or even deceptive by imposing our Trinitarian understanding of Jesus onto the translation and the interpretation of this text. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining all of the nuances of this particular controversy or other uh, scholarly debates about the translation of this text. I'll just say a few things briefly. First of all, mighty God the way that it's translated here, is not a wrong translation. It's one of the legitimate ways to understand the translation of this text, both grammatically and contextually. And in fact, some Jewish translations do translate it as mighty God, but they change the structure so that it's not referring to this baby. Second, and more importantly, it's not wrong for us to interpret one passage of Scripture based on what we understand about other, from other passages of Scripture. And this is where we probably might disagree with some scholars, especially those that don't hold to the authority of Scripture. What we know clearly about this text is that it refers to Jesus. We know that because Matthew references this passage, verse 1 and 2, in his gospel, chapter 4 of his gospel, when Jesus starts his earthly ministry in Galilee. If you were listening, you, you heard in verse, at the end of verse 1 a reference to Galilee of the nations. And so when Jesus starts his ministry in Galilee, the, Matthew tells us that this is to fulfill what Isaiah wrote. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, referring to Jesus. So we know that the passage is about Jesus. Finally, even if we translate it as mighty warrior or mighty one, it doesn't 
ultimately change the meaning of the text and what we can understand about who Jesus is through this text. And we'll see that as we open up the text a little bit more. Here's the main thing I want us to understand, though. People don't deny the divinity of Jesus because of translational differences and scholarly debates. People deny the divinity of Jesus because it undermines the authority of Jesus. And if you undermine the authority of Jesus, you can reject the claims of Jesus. The fact is that we... We don't need Isaiah 9, 6 to tell us that Jesus was God. Jesus did that himself. And what we see now through the lens of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we see in this passage that God's all, had God always planned for this incarnational miracle. It was always part of God's redemptive purposes to enter into our human weakness and brokenness and darkness in order to save us. Save us. That's how we can allow the, the, what we understand about Jesus and about Scripture as a whole to inform how we understand and interpret other parts of Scripture. It was always part of his plan. But the fact that people respond so strongly to Jesus' claim of divinity is actually evidence of his divinity. John Stott observes in his book, Basic Christianity, if you read the Bible, and listen, this is insightful, if you read the Bible, you'll see that nobody who ever met Jesus ever had a moderate reaction to him. There are only three reactions to Jesus. They either hated him and wanted to kill him, or they were afraid of him and wanted to run away, or they were absolutely smitten with him and they tried to give their whole lives to him. Friends, the question for us is how will we respond to this one who has come? God has taken on flesh, and as one translation puts it, moved into our neighborhood. We can receive him or we can reject him, but we cannot ignore him. So we've addressed this question, who has come? We've seen that it is the God-man, Jesus. Let's consider the question of why he has come. I want to go back to verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. I don't think I have to work very hard to convince you that our world is a dark place. Every time I open my phone and look at the news headlines, I'm, I'm confronted with the brutal realities of this world's darkness. Just two days ago, I looked at a headline. Two gang members in Chicago sentenced to a combined total of 155 years in prison for the execution-style revenge killing of a nine-year-old boy. Who, who, how does that happen? Darkness. There's darkness in our world as, at a systemic and global scale. Wars in Yemen and Syria and other places 
in the world that have killed hundreds of thousands of people and displaced tens of millions. Severe drought in East Africa that right now is threatening tens of millions of people. Political instability and uncertainty, racism and systemic poverty. But there's, there's darkness that's much closer to our lives, isn't there? Illness and disease, abuse and neglect, relational conflict, financial stress and insecurity. And there's darkness inside of us as well. Depression, anxiety, addiction, anger, bitterness, loneliness. The world is not as it should be. And as Jason said in the first message, the first Advent message a couple weeks ago, our problems, our brokenness, our darkness don't take a break just because it's Christmas time. It's not a coincidence that we decorate everything with lights at Christmas. We want to feel good at the holidays, right? So we create an environment that's bright and merry and happy so that we can feel good. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when we are confronted with real darkness and real brokenness in our lives and in our world, lights and presents and songs and food don't help us. At best, they briefly distract us. At worst, they just remind us of how dark things really are. And maybe that's where some of you are right now. Maybe you've experienced that this holiday season. The people of Israel experienced this. If we look back just a few verses in chapter 18, starting in verse 19, We see how Israel responded when they were confronted with darkness in their lives. It says, When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. When they are confronted with darkness in their lives and in their world, the threat of invasion, the fear of hunger, and of death. The people of Israel looked to the things around them, to the things of their world, the things that offered power and security for their salvation. But it's precisely because of this, because of where they looked, that they wind up in such a deep place of distress and darkness. They look to the people around them who claim to be able to solve their problems and give answers to their fears and insecurity. Maybe you can relate. 
Have you tried looking to the things of this world to numb your pain and to answer, to, to escape your fears and insecurities? I don't think that many of us are going to psychics and to mediums to solve our problems. Maybe some are. It's apparently a $2 billion industry, so somebody is going to them. More likely, we're looking to jobs, to relationships, to money, to diets, to experiences. These are the influential powers of our time that offer us escape from our problems. They offer us security when we feel afraid. They offer us escape and hope. But Isaiah reminds us, should not a people inquire of their God? The solution we need, friends, must come from outside of ourselves. From outside of our world. Because we dwell in a land of deep darkness. Why did Jesus, the God-man, break into the darkness of our world? Because we could not overcome the darkness on our own. John 1.4 In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Invite the band or invite Brandon and Taylor to come back. We've seen that Jesus, the God-man, has broken into our human story. To do what we can't do on our own. To overcome the darkness that sin has brought into our lives and into our world. And in the last few minutes that we have, I want to briefly look at these four names that are attributed to this one who has come. And here I think we can find great encouragement for our souls as we consider not just who Jesus is in a general sense, but what he has come to do for each of us. And after I finish, we'll go straight into a time of reflection. And as Brandon and Taylor play, I invite you just to consider these names. Consider who Jesus is and allow who he is to speak to the brokenness, to the darkness, to the problems and the pain that you're experiencing right now. I don't know what it is. I know that there are problems. I know that there's darkness. I know that there's pain in this room, filling this room right now. Jesus has come to shine into that darkness. So let's allow the truth of who he is to speak to our need and to our brokenness. Wonderful counselor, The term wonderful here means wondrous, marvelous, beautiful, miraculous. It carries with it a divine tone, a divine implication. Counselor is not a word that we use, I think, a lot in our day-to-day lives. It's referring to an advisor or someone who devises a plan. I think we can understand this name as one who comes with a marvelous plan a miraculous plan for our lives. Friends, do you feel lost? Do you feel adrift in the darkness of our world? Do you feel confused by the darkness all around you? Do you feel like you don't have any purpose or direction in your life? Your wonderful counselor has a marvelous plan for your life, a plan for your joy, a plan for your Good, a plan for your satisfaction and peace both now and for all eternity. Mighty God, 
or mighty warrior. We've already talked about this term, El Gabor, the mighty one who fights on our behalf. What battles are you trying to fight on your own right now? Battles against sin, battles against doubt, battles against lies in your life and, or in the life of someone that you love, battles against injustice in the world. El Gabor, the mighty one, he's conquered sin and death and stands ready to fight on your behalf. Everlasting Father, the one who has loved us for all eternity. From eternity past, without end, without condition, without limitation, the one who has loved us infinitely and perfectly. Do you feel lonely? Have you been hurt? Rejected? Neglected? abused, even by your own earthly father. The everlasting father has broken into your world to show you how passionate he is to live in relationship with you. He has loved you from all eternity. Prince of peace or ruler of peace. The one who will once and for all establish justice and righteousness on the earth forever. Do you groan under the weight of injustice and violence and pain and brokenness in the world? I do. When I read stories like that one I just referenced from a couple days ago, the, these gang members in Chicago, something inside of me groans. It seems too much. It seems like darkness is everywhere, that it's overwhelming. But friends, it won't be this way forever. A limit has been fixed. A day has been set when death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire and a new heavens and a new earth will be established in justice and righteousness where the curse of sin will never touch us again. Revelation 21, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, anymore, for the, for, their, for the former things have passed away. When Mary heard the incredible news that she would bear a child who would fulfill all of God's promises to his people, she had a simple question. And it, maybe it's the same question you have right now. How can this be? How will this be? How can God redeem all of the brokenness and darkness that we see in the world? Isaiah's answer is very similar to the answer that Gabriel gave to Mary. The zeal 
of the Lord of hosts will do it. God's passionate, relentless, jealous ambition is for your salvation and joy. He's demonstrated that once through his coming as a baby in a manger. He will fulfill it once and for all when he returns as a conquering king. So we say, with all the saints that have come before us, amen, come, Lord Jesus.